0: Like I, hold your head up high till you find the blue bird of happiness. You will find greater peace of mind knowing there's a blue of happiness. And Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick book club in each episode of this podcast I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and today I will be continuing my examination of Philip K. Dick's 1964 novel the simulacrum the simulacrum um, is one of four novels that Dick published in 1964 so really one of his breakout years in terms of, of beginning to write really big important novels. The kind of novels that really defined his career uh, The other three he writes in that year are the, Or publishes in that year are The Clans of the Elphane Moon Martian Timeslip, which I already looked at And The Penultimate Truth um, So they're all really important novels to, to get your head around to understand Dick's um, career, career. Um, Now I really like The Simulacrum It's a novel that has a lot of different moving parts A lot of different things going on But it does come together fairly nicely And even though the story, as we'll see in future episodes Is, is rather incomplete It does give some important kind of emotional closure to, to some of the major characters. But I think one of the most defining features of the Simulacrum is so many different um, tracks going on at the same time. And yeah, they're kind of interacting in the same world, but even more so than some other of Dick's novels that do this. There's a lot of just simply moving parts. So let me try to tell you where we're at. I'm going to look at chapters seven, eight, and nine today, but I'm going to go back and, and look at kind of where we are at the beginning of chapter seven from our different characters point of view. And I'll start with the characters who, who we begin with the novel, and that's Nat Flieger. His main plot line up to this point is, is quite simple. He's works for a recording company and he has this biotech recording device called uh, the, the AMPEC you know, FA2 is what it's called. And this he wants to use to to visit and record or visit uh, a man named Richard Congrosian and record him Playing classical music. He he's actually a classical pianist, but he his his stick is that he uses his telekinesis to play play music, so he doesn't have to use his hands ever. And so their plot is essentially they're going to go to congrosian's house, and the reason they want to do this is they they want to finish their contract they have with congrosian and get some their recordings that they're contractually obligated to get from him. But they want to do this before congrosian's own decline, and he's facing um a rather. Severe emotional decline and, that, and then they just kind of go on He goes, so this Nat Flieger goes with uh, Molly Who's I think like the boss's daughter And she's just kind of a, a bit of a cold fish But she's interested in meeting Congrosian and hearing him play And um, a man named Jim Plank So they're going off together Just on this quest essentially To you know, home Which is in a real kind of slum area And as they go there They run into the a, a march, they, so in a really slummy area, kind of like a, you know, kind of not just like the rural area, but like a, a rural slum. And he runs into uh, Goltz. Goltz is the head of a fascist movement called the Sons of Job that picks up a lot of the alienated and disaffected young people or other people who don't have jobs or have lost their apartment lease. And are just kind of bitter at the system. And he claims to not be a fascist or an anti-Semite. He actually claims to be a Jew. He claims instead to just be against the the main political system, which we'll we'll come to in a in a little bit. So then that leads me to the plotline surrounding Kingrosian. Kingrosian's not in his home, so in this sense, Nat Flieger's quest is a bit um, uh, doomed to failure. In fact, he's he's on his way to see uh, a psychiatrist. Uh, he has severe Mental problems caused by the fact that he internalizes what he hears in advertisements. So he hears an advertisement talk about body odor. He thinks he has really bad body odor that can even spread over telegraph lines and phone lines. And he also learned later on starts to think he's invisible because there's commercials that say, are you invisible? How can you make yourself more conspicuous? How can you make, you know, girls see you or something? So then he hears these commercials and comes to the conclusion that he is himself invisible. So what we see with his character is essentially he's, he's, he's mad at a major chemical company because they have pushed through a law called the McPherson Act, which basically bans psychotherapy, something he relies on quite heavily. So he, he calls this co- chemical company and asks them first for a product to get rid of his phobic body odor, his psychic body odor. And second, he wants to sh- send his body odor through the phone lines to contaminate. The, the chemical company in, in a form of revenge. Ultimately, though, he wants to see Dr. Egon Superb, the last working psychotherapist. So that's essentially where he is at this part of the story. Now, the doctor he wants to see, Dr. Egon Superb, is the last working psychotherapist. Uh, the law was that was passed meant that any psychotherapist who went to work would be arrested. In fact, thousands were, but Egon Superb was allowed to live, or not allowed to live, allowed to continue practicing his 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 psychotherapy. Why? Well, the reason why is he's approached by a government agent named Pembroke, who says, I want you to continue seeing patients. In fact, I want you to take every patient that comes to you, no matter how sane or insane they may be, because we want that patient to remain insane. Essentially, the government wants a particular person and it turns out uh, to be Richard Fingrosian, to continue to see a psychotherapist to remain insane because there's no faith that psychotherapy actually works so uh, it's a bit of a it's a little bit of a humorous uh, criticism of the whole psycho um, psych, psych, psychiatric profession i guess um, so that's what's going on there so this leads us to the move into the major plot line within the government um, so society in this world of the of the simulacrum what's We see the world's divided up into kind of a bipolar situation where you have um, the the U.S.E.A., United States of Europe and America. And then or the United Nations of Europe and America. No, I think it's the United States of Europe and America in this case. So there that's basically America in Europe, Western Europe. And then you have Russia, which is then the Soviet bloc, which their capitals in Warsaw. Congrosion, in fact, was from the Russian sphere. And he, he left, defected to to the American site. Within the United States, though, or within the U.S.E.A., there are basically two classes of people: the the, the gays, G's, and the bays, B's. Um, G's, I think I, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. It. It's based on the German. The the gays know the truth of the political system. The bays don't, and the bays are basically brainwashed by the media and. Uh, told a a big lie and so the whole government is based on one single lie that some people know and most people don't and that's really the class division in the society it's not really based on income so much i don't actually see much evidence that's an income-based division it's really one based on knowledge and when people need to know they they actually will be told this and then they'll be entering into the higher class and there are characters who undergo that transition in the course of the story so that truth is there's basically two parts to it the first is that the Leader, the elected leader of, of the West, the Der Alta, is actually a simulacrum. Um, the second is that the first lady, who's constant, so every time there's a new election, and of course the election's always fixed essentially because the Der Alta is always a simulacrum, so he's always going to say whatever the ruling council wants. But, anyways, the, the people essentially vote for who the first lady will marry, and the first lady's a constant um, figure. Her name's Nicole. Nicole Thibodeau And she's been first lady for about 80 years or so And we learn a little bit later in the story But I'll just come on and tell you now Because it's the second truth that the ruling class knows And that is Nicole is an actress The original Nicole Thibodeau died And she's been replaced with with a new woman So those are the two central truths the, That um, the the ruling class knows Now what's, we, we actually do see Nicole as a character And she's engaged in basically uh, a plot to well she's got a lot on, us, on her plate right she's got the question of should we suppress emigration by putting an end to the the jalopy jungles which are where people can go uh, to buy one way ships that that basically you can shoot on Mars but not back should we suppress those should we suppress the Sons of Job music, m- movement this quasi-fascist movement and should uh What should we do about this von Lessing principle, which which has been developed? It basically allows time travel. And they try to assassinate Hitler a few times to save the Third Reich. It seems there's a major goal here to preserve the Third Reich by getting rid of of Hitler. The assassination attempts have failed. So now they're trying to bring Hermann Gehring to the future to make a deal with him. She also meets with other people. She meets with, for instance, the the Israeli uh, ambassador, a prime minister who's talk who talks about various things mostly about his interest in maybe saving the lives of the jews it doesn't seem to be the major focus of nicole um but but he's got some interest in this plot to bring garing back but he's not he's kind of lukewarm about it but he also talks about how the Israel is now beginning to send people to Mars to settle the Mars. Now, the frontier here compared to Martian time Slip, that novel, is, of course, very distant. It's just somewhere out there. So I don't get a good look at it. But it's, it's much more the classic frontier where people want to go to kind of get a new life or to get a new start. But it seems the people that go there, with the exception maybe of the Israelis, kind of go there as losers. Like They run out of options on Earth and then they, they are sent out there um so who does this leave for characters okay then we have the characters who are really based in the abraham lincoln apartments and we have kind of two sets of characters here the abraham lincoln apartments are just one of many communal apartments that people live in maintaining leases in these places is very important in fact it's competitive if you fail certain exams that are periodically given you might lose your lease and get your money back that you invested in it and then have to find somewhere else to live or maybe emigrate um we have two brothers living here, one, you know, Chick Strike Rock and Vince Strike Rock. Now, they both work in the business of making simulacrum. Um, one, though, Chick works in a small company, Maury um, Frozimmer Associates. That's a small firm. And they're all both going to go to business. And then her, his brother, Vince Strike Rock, Strike Rock li- works at a big con- conglomerate, one of the big... Um, Artels. In fact, it's so important that Simulacrum company, because that's the company that makes the Deralta. They have the contract to make the Deralta, which I think Vince is actually a part of that ruling class that has this knowledge to begin with. His brother maybe doesn't. Um, I'm not sure if that's strictly stated, but um, eventually, you know, this this becomes important the fact that Vince works for, the, for these com- this company and his brother works for a, a very similar company, but on a much smaller scale and the other thing going on with these brothers is that chick has basically stolen vince's um ex-wife and is sleeping with her and, and living with her um chick at you know brought early in the novel learns that he's going to be fired he goes into work one day and he learns that he's going to that the, the basically frau zimmers can't keep him on anymore and it's going to have to let him go okay so that's the strike rock brothers and they're their situation. Uh, the other character from the Abraham Lincoln Apartments we meet is Ian Duncan, and he's recently failed his exam to stay in there, and he's really depressed. He's kind of at the end of his his rope. Um, he doesn't really know what his future in life is going to be, and he thinks a lot about emigrating or maybe joining the Sons of Job movement. But he's very much in love with Nicole, and he, he thinks he's finally going to have a, his his way out. And his way out that he hopes to have is to get back together with his old buddy al miller and they together they play classical jug so they play classical music on the old folk music jug thing um which you can go online and listen to it's kind of funny to try to imagine schubert being played on a a jug um so he's going to try this is going to be his last chance now what happens is people at these apartment complexes put on talent shows and occasionally talent scouts from the white house see them and then if they're impressed they'll bring these people to play before nicole and this is like one of the greatest achievements one can have in life and this is this is what Ian Duncan thinks is really his last chance to do that. And if he fails at this, he's basically said he's going to, like, uh, emigrate, right? Now, interestingly, Al Miller, his friend he meets, works at one of these jalopy jungles for a man named Looney Luke. And the jalopy, jalopy jungles just sort of show up when people need to emigrate. It's kind of cool how huh? they'll show up next to people who, who feel the need to emigrate. Maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe... He's got access to the Von Lessing principle or maybe it's, you know, psychic ability is involved. I'm not quite sure. But they use these things called um, palulas, which are kind of Martian creatures, but they're all extinct. So they make simulacrums of them that can kind of beam advertisements telepathically into people's minds to really manipulate them. Um, So I think that gives us most of the characters and where they are um, at the end of chapter six. As you see, a lot of different threads for such a short novel, um, but they're all kind of floating around uh kind of i think one of the overall themes is kind of me- how do we find meaning in our lives and you know where do we attach to that and and kind of the psychological breakdown of entire societies isn't anything going on in this novel and i think these are related right it's really because characters lack a true meaning in life and a purpose um or because what they've been told about the world is a lie is a f- is is false that they kind of end up feeling very disconnected and aloof and 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 all that's really left for them then is to emigrate or to you know join fascist movements or or whatever so the plot of the novel actually is about the breaking down of these lies and then what that means for people and and how people are able to break free of of this kind of ennui i guess that's a good word for for this novel is the ennui that people feel and it's not just the poor people like ian duncan who feel it it's even like congrosian experiences as well as as well um, so, anyways, that's that's where we are at the end of chapter six. I'm going to pick up at, with chapter seven and then and look at the next three chapters of, of the novel. So, if you're reading along, um, you can. That, that's where I'm going to start. Okay, in chapter seven, we're given three scenes. Um, the first scene uh, is basically where we catch up with Ian Duncan, and he's convinced Al Miller. He went to visit Al Miller at a Jalapí jungle and convinced him to pull out his old classical jug. To get back to practicing it, and he applies to join the talent show that's held at the Abraham Lincoln Apartment Complex that Al Ian Duncan lives at. There's a question, though, and a bit of a dilemma by the organizers of the of the talent show whether they should allow Al Melner in because the talent shows are supposed to be for the residents of the apartment complex, not for outsiders, right? And eventually, they agree to basically to let him in basically as a guest, right? Because the idea is like, sometimes we let family members in as guests, so we'll, we'll let a friend in as a guest. We'll let, 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 let Al Miller in as a guest. So they eventually approve of it. But there's a little of a dilemma about how much the talent shows really for just the in-group or whether it should be open to the public, you know, or, you know, does bringing in an outsider then close down chances for people from within the apartment complex to get ahead and get their chance to, to meet Nicole. So that's just a very quick scene, but it establishes that Ian Duncan will be performing at the, at the Abraham Lincoln Apartments, his classical jug routine with his friend. All right, then we, we jump to another scene with Vince Strike Rock and he has, and it's here, he, he knows his wife left him, but it's in this chapter where he learns that his, that Vince... His ex-wife is having an affair with none other than her his brother, and so he he kind of goes on a rage, and even for a moment, for a while, wants to kill his brother. So he goes and charges over to Chick's house and confronts him, and he wants to confront Julie, his ex-wife, as well. Interestingly, they begin to talk about the McPherson Act, the act that ended psychotherapy in in the USA. Um, and changed, you know, replaced it fully with, with chemical, um, solutions to that, to, to mental illness. He, um, so they banter about that and they even play with the idea. And eventually they decide to do this, to go to see Egon superb. And of course Egon superb has been ordered by the government to accept all new patients. So there's kind of a gag here that all these weirdos, you know, from all over the place call him cause he's the last <laughs> psychotherapist. So he has to, but he has to take all of these, these patients, even if, you know, for the silly things. In this case, it's like marriage counseling or like who should get the girl kind of um, a a discussion, not true psychological problems. Although maybe Vince and Chick have a few things going on, but they're not like mentally ill, it seems. But they they decide to go to Egon Superb to to work out, to maybe get an expert to to make a decision on who should get the girl kind of thing. Um, Chick, though, claims not to really love Julie. In fact, at one point, um, he says vince if you give me a job at your new firm then then i will i'll give you julie back and uh, you know vince at the time is is not sure He, he he's kind of open to this idea idea to get at least julie out of chick's bed um, but of course vince works for the big cartel that makes simulacrum and and chick works for the small one that's going on of business and will in the next week or so what Neither of these people know is that the big contract, the one to make the Deralta simulacrum, has has already been decided by the government to be given to the Zimmer Associates from the from the one that Vince works for. So actually, Chick is better off, would be better off to stay in the the company that he's planning to leaving. But he's he's basically saying I'm going to be fired from there soon, even though I was able to keep my job for another week or so. I'm going to lose that job eventually. So he tries to get over to to Vince's company. He's going to use Julie essentially as a, a a pawn in this, like a trade, like a, a chip uh, to, to trade, in, a trade chip uh, in getting a new job. So yeah, so this section just ends with this resolution that they're gonna go see Dr. Doctor Egan superb. Um, and then we get to the third scene, which, uh, where we have, we have Nicole and she's, oh, she's talking with Janet, who's her talent, scout and they're hearing some really bad folk singing and she's a bit disappointed about what she sees and she was reminded how much she wants to have Kongrosian back performing. Um, she meets uh, Garth McRae. Garth McRae is the secretary, basically the Secretary of State and he's the one we met I believe it was him we met earlier who, who was the one who made the decision to change the contract for the production and the maintenance of the Deralta to Frau Zimmer Associates. Uh, they talk about uh Congrosion's call his weird call to janet um about why he can't perform at the white house and everything and all his phobic body odor and everything and nicole wants to hear it because she's very much concerned about king Grosjean's mental health there, some new performers come on the stage and they perform some haydn and she thinks she'd much rather hear some wagner and she actually imagines some wagner pieces she'd rather hear so she's a bit disappointed with um you know what she what she's seen in in terms of of performance this seems to be a big part of her life is spending time seeing um, popular performances but this is also a major way that kind of social mobility is given a bit of a facade right it's like Erzat's um social mobility right you you perform before nicole and you're kind of on the top of the world It's, it's kind of like the reality tv culture we live in certainly and we have a bit of um in fact, she thinks about Urzach's reality here in, in this chapter. So they, they talk about the Giminas. The Giminas is the, the, the big lie, right? The big truth that the Gaze knows know, know about the world, it's particularly that the Duralt is a simulacrum. But Nicole talks about this. She says, it's amusing. Nicole persisted. Isn't it? Rudy's a dummy. An Urzak creation of a cartel system, and yet he's the highest elected officer of the U.S.E.A. These people voted for him, and the Deralta before him, and so on, back for 50 years. I'm sorry, but it's so funny. There's no other way to look at it. She was laughing now. The idea of not knowing this Gemenis, this state secret, and suddenly finding it out was too much for her. I think I'll go ahead, she told Garth. Yes, I made up my mind. Contact Carp Work tomorrow morning. Talk directly with Anton and Felix. Tell them, among other things, that we'll arrest him instantly if they try to betray us to the bays. Tell them that the NP is ready to move on them. End quote. So in there is actually a very interesting, important plot point, and that is this concern of what will happen to global society if, if Carp, the company, in you know retaliation for losing the contract, just decides to release the Gemenis. And she says, "No, well, we got to make it clear to him that if they try that, they're gonna you know end up in jail or, or worse, right? Um, but you get this sense that there's really." It's kind of a big joke from from their perspective that they have this Erzak's uh, political system. Um, they get a big uh, they get some humor out of it, but th- this is like this is again the great secret um, at the heart of of society. Um, so a lot of what's going on in this part of the chapter is Wilder Pembroke, this kind of the head of the military police. He's confronting Nicole on the danger of moving this contract for the Deralta to a different company. Uh, he basically thinks they still need to deal with carp, carpentron um, in in some way, like you know, buy them off or you know, make them happy or, or something. That you know, there's going to be consequences for for pissing off such a major company, right? But Nicole just finds this all funny. Um, Nicole at the at the end of the chapter, though, she starts to consider maybe she should just purge uh, the carp. Um, cartel entirely, just get rid of all those people. So she's got a brutal side, even though she's just an actress. She's she's learned to be a brutal person, and that that opens up an interesting question of whether she, how much she is Nicole and how much she plays Nicole. There's only a couple moments where where Nicole thinks about the fact that she's an actress and thinks about the fe- you know that she's just here because she was a pretty young woman, I guess, who got cast for a role. But nevertheless, she's got true political power, and she becomes the brutal dictator that she has to be. But is that really who she is? We don't really get any sense of who this woman, her name's actually Kate, her real name's Kate, who she is and what she's really like. And it's interesting, you know, we, th- we, you know, I guess the classic case of this might be Obama, right? Who seems to be a good person, a kind of progressive guy, a guy who doesn't like war, right? But of course, as president, he increased drone strikes. You know, he sustained wars. He was a corporate, you know, basically a corporate Democrat, you know, he didn't engage in many progressive policies and the ones he did engage in were kind of half-assed, like Obamacare. You know, and it seems, is it the position that made him that way or, or is that his true self, right? And then there's still this belief that, oh, if we just get the right guy into office, you know, whether, depending on your point of view, if it's Trump or, or Sanders or someone like that, then they will, they'll fix this. They'll drain the swamp, right? They'll fix the system because they'll, they'll be honest and true. And that doesn't fully account for the fact that the position changes you. Now, of course, with Trump, we find that in some ways it seems the position doesn't change them that much. Right. It's actually surprising to me almost every day how little Trump is transformed by the fact that he's president. Anyways, um, moving on. Chapter eight. All right. Chapter eight. Um, So we have three three scenes here. The first scene is Ian and Al, um, Ian Duncan and Al Miller. And um, basically, I I guess we don't really see their performance at the Abraham Lincoln apartments. It's just kind of foreshadowed or or set up. So, but uh, Ian Duncan and Al Miller have been allowed to perform at the Abraham Lincoln apartments. They're all set up and they begin the performance. And their trick is they're using the the polula. This is the advertising Um, technique that the jalopy jungles use so they're they're basically these little martian creatures but this one's a simulacrum and that it it projects these advertisements into people's brains as i said and here the plan is essentially to use the pulula to influence the Talon scouts that may be in the audience and i think there is there has to be one yeah in in the audience i'm not sure if they know it though i have to go back and look Um, but you can see their main focus is to try to get to, to, to to Win, so they can move up and see Nicole and, um, quote, well, I'll just go to a quote that kind of reflects their, their motivations here. Quote, we'll win whether we play the jugs or not. And then we, and then what? Will meeting Nicole make us even more unhappy than we are? If that's what we'll get out of this hopeless, massive discontent and ache longing, which can never be satisfied in the world. It was too late to back out now The doors of the auditorium had shut And Don Tishman was rising from his chair Ripping in the order Okay folks He said into a lapel microphone We're gonna have a little display Of some talent right now For everyone's enjoyment And then they begin their performance Alright so we see Ian Duncan's like a Just a miserable person actually He can't ever be happy he always consumes the worst so even if he's getting close to achieving his life's goal even if he's doing it sort of by cheating he's worried that you know if he meets Nicole then you know maybe he'll still be miserable and maybe nothing will really solve his depression and his 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 overall malaise Um, but anyways then we move to uh, another scene where we have basically Congrosion and superb having a dialogue um, a discussion about Congrosion's mental health. So we're actually getting this scene from Superb's point of view. So I think it's like Chick comes in to see Superb first. So Chick comes in, and and of course Superb has to agree to take his new patients. And Chick is trying to get Superb to, you know, help him basically do this marriage counseling to help him decide with his brother who you know how to deal with this relationship with Julie. And it's while he's doing that, Congrosion calls, and he he calls Superb and. He has a very, very fascinating talk about his psychological problems with, with Superb. And And we get this sense Congrosian very much wants to escape. He wants to escape the world and and to have a bit of freedom. And he feels really trapped. He feels trapped by his mental illnesses. He feels trapped also by Nicole. And there's a couple of really moments where he he really has a lot of anguish over how limited he feels in his life and how, you know, he feels so bound by you know, performing and having to satisfy Nicole. And he's got this kind of weird love for Nicole. And that's one reason maybe he's living out in the, in the boonies is he's really trying to get away from it all. Um, but he also feels so limited by these, these kind of growing and accumulating mental disorders he has in his head. He says, at one point, for instance, it occurs to me now that I can get out of this damn hospital anytime I want. I can roam the land, in fact, except for the smell. No, you're forgetting the smell, doctor. It'll give me away. I appreciate what you're trying to do, but you're not taking all the facts into account. I think the thing for me to do is to bind myself over to the Attorney General, Buck, Epstein, and not, or if if not that, go back to the Soviet Union. Maybe the Pavlov Institute could help me. Yes, I should try that again. I tried it once before, you know. And then he goes on with the very next sentence, essentially. says, you know, doctor, I think the actual basis of my psychiatric problem is I'm unconsciously in love with Nicole. What do you say to that? I just figured it out. It just came to me. It's replete with clarity. The incest taboo or barrier or whatever has always been out in the direction my libido has taken. Because, of course, Nicole is a mother figure. Am I correct? End quote. And, of course, this is true for a lot of characters, is that Nicole is a motherly figure, but she's also... A sex object right she's beautiful and she's the hottest woman in the world essentially and at least that's how everyone sees 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 her but everyone puts projects on her these these motherly needs and this need for comfort and guidance and security and that's why these it's always like men we don't see enough women in fact nicole's i think the only woman we get a close look at we, we meet mrs congrosian we meet Molly, but we don't really get into their head too much. It's the men we really experience, and they're all having this, this Oedipix complex, you know, via Nicole. And so Suburbs has this talk with them. It interrupts Chick's meeting with them. And then, um, after Congrosion calls, uh, we're back to Chick. Suburb, of course must take all the patients. And then they have a conversation about Nicole and Chick talks about how she fears Nicole. And she, he actually talks about how he fears Julie as well, and he's essentially feeling all fears all women, and he we kind of gets into his own psychological issues with women. He has, so he has them. Ian Duncan has them. Congerousian has them, and it's kind of sense we get the sense that basically all men have this. Chick goes even farther, blaming himself for the fact that. That people live, we live in this matriarchy, and he's not the first person to do this. Uh, Ian Duncan, I believe it was earlier in the novel, actually also blames himself, or his generation, or or men like him for for the fact that we live in a in a that that they live in a world dominated by women. And Chick confesses that he wants to go join the Golds movement to you know, basically through the Golds movement he can finally be a real man. He can be liberated from Nicole, and he can get out of the foot of this kind of motherly domineering matriarchal figure and finally be a man. And so the theme of emasculation for men is so strong in this book. And that's what really piques my interest so much is because so much of the alt-right and kind of the Jordan Peterson stuff seems to be attracting men who feel they don't have a place in this world, right? Right. For lack of a better word, they feel a bit emasculated by by the society, right? And that's one of the reasons these people have such a problem with feminism, it seems, right? Because they they project like their own inadequacies on on the gains women have made in a way. So uh, I know I'm oversimplifying the the problem. If you want to know more about this, a really wonderful book to read is uh, well, I forget her first name. It's Nagel, N-A-G-L-E. It's called Kill All Normies, and she spent a lot of time in kind of alt-right alt right internet communities and on 4chan and things. And she investigates, you know, the psychology of these men and their attitudes towards women and why are they so sexist is kind of the question she went at. And uh, she's got her answers to that. But it seems to come down to the fact that a lot of these are, you know, people living in their basement, you know, tied to the internet, watching internet porn. They don't have girlfriends. They don't have jobs often. And then they, they project they, they project their anxieties on on feminism or you know the rise of women in society or whatever so i I just think this is so predictive of the kind of the situation we're in it's kind of striking in fact when i first read it i would never even thought of these things and even a couple years ago i wouldn't have thought of these things but now you know it it comes to life so much anyways uh the final scene of chapter eight uh so now uh scene three of of chapter eight these scenes aren't aren't labeled. It's just every chapter here is, is, you know, taking place in a lot of different areas. Um, this, isn't, this isn't how Dick Wright reads all, writes all his novels. I'm reading, like, The Clans of the Elphine Moon, and there each chapter is a scene. Essentially here, each chapter has, like, two or three, or in some cases, four scenes. So it's just how it's constructed. But um, uh, So the next, the final scene of Chapter 8 is is Nat and Molly and Jim Plank after this Goltz rally, after this meeting with Goltz. Um, first, Molly is continuing to tease Nat and you get a sense of, there's a lot of kind of maybe sexual tension there between, between these two. In fact, earlier in the novel, Molly jokes like, do you want to marry me? Are you in love with me? Kind of, kind of thing, but she's not, you know, mocking Nat over, you know, is attending the, of the gold meeting, but then things really get wild and bizarre. They, they go into this old gas station and this is a throwback to a previous time. And again, they're, they're in kind of this degraded slum neighborhood, right? Where, it's, it's kind of like somewhat reclaimed, but also there's all this old stuff, old buildings, old houses living there. And it's really, everyone will wonder why is King Grosian, this world-famous performer, this person who spends a lot of time in the White House, who knows Nicole personally, living essentially in, in the ghetto? It's almost like if we find out, you know, Elon Musk or something, or maybe we should have a performer, right? We find out Brad Pitt, you know, lives in like the LA ghetto or something. You know the worst neighborhood, like Ground Zero for the LA riots. You know that's that's where he lives. That's where his house is. Um, So they're in this place. They find this old gas station. They're fascinated by this, and it's kind of like almost like they they run into this old throwback artifact. And then they meet this man who seems to be out of time too. And he calls himself a chubber. And so there is this population of people who have these deformed faces. And everyone assumes they're nuclear mutants. And he says, I'm, they're chubbers. And they actually have like a little association and like a little card. And they're, they're like beggars or they perform visits different services for, for payment. And they, so they even have this kind of association. And they ask the chubber, who they can barely speak because of the way their head is shaped, is they ask him for the directions to congrosions and he gives them, but they have to pay him off, right? So it's like a, they just hang out and they, they, they do kind of beggar work you know sometimes you're at the back the bus station and people open the door for you right and you have to pay them like a little bit so in exchange for little services you have to give a tip and then they realize who these chubbers are that they're not nuclear mutants they're not of the future like a nuclear mutant would be of the future right especially in philip dick's world where you see this a lot in his short stories where there's a mutation you know precognition or whatever that allows people to see the future manipulate the future and or, or to actually be the next stage of humanity here we have the throwbacks like the, the the past in fact they're they're not instead of being nuclear mutants they're actually neanderthal survivalists right so they're there's a they're a community of neanderthals that have endured right and dick's going to play with this idea in a very different way in the kraken space um, where it's kind of a different earth, a parallel earth in which Neanderthals never died out and became the dominant species. Here, it's just like a population of Neanderthals had never died out. And they've been just kind of biding their time for the, the end of humanity, for them to rise again. And they're just kind of living on the margins in these kind of slummy regions. It's really fascinating. Uh, it's, there's a lot to think about here. If anyone has like ideas of how to fully interpret Dick's view of the Neanderthal here, I would love, very much love to hear what you have to, have to say about this. Um, but it seems like the gas station the Neanderthals here are the throwbacks to, to the past. Here's what Nat says about it. He says, The supremacy of the past, Nat said. In this region, the past ruled, ruled through entirety, int- entirely. Their collective past, the war which had preceded their immediate era, its consequences, the ecological changes in everyone's lives. This was a museum, but a live movement of a circular sort. He shut his eyes. I wonder, he thought. If new chuppers are born, it must be genetically carried. I know it is, or rather, he thought, I'm afraid it is. This is the waning sport this is the waning sporting, and yet it continues on. They have survived. And that's good for the real environment, for the evolutionary process. That's what it does from the trilobite on. He felt sick. And then he thought, I've seen this malformity before. And that's when he realizes that they're they're actually Neanderthals. Or it's actually by thinking about the past. He realizes that they're of the past um, themselves. And it's, it's kind of interesting that a society so obsessed with the future and projecting themselves in the future can't see the chubbers for what they are. In Neanderthals, they assume they're, they're of the future. That is, they're, they're products of technology. They're products of genetic mutations. But in fact, they're, they're throwbacks. Um, now, there is a short story written, I think, in the 40s, maybe the 30s, about a a neanderthal survivalist i forget what it's called but it's like one neanderthal didn't die like for some reason he could, he could live forever and he's super smart because now i don't know the science behind this i i'm convinced that neanderthal brains were pretty much equivalent with human brains um their extinction as something entirely is not because they were necessarily inferior to homo sapiens i, I think that's not how we can measure biology we shouldn't have this kind of social darwinian uh, idea of 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 evolution but nevertheless you know the assumption when that story was written was that neanderthal brains must have been significantly smaller than human brains and therefore they were dumb but the the thing is he had so much time to learn right because he lived for thousands of years he was able to acquire so much knowledge that he was like the smartest guy around Uh, i forgot the name of the story though so anyways that is that's chapter eight and let's jump to chapter nine uh chapter nine also has three scenes in it um we open with with chick and Maury. um so chick has chick i think he's going back yeah he's going back to his uh workplace to talk with Maury. and Maury had previously said you're fired but then went back and said well it doesn't really matter we're going out of business anyway, so you can stay on until we're out of business but now that chick thinks he's able to get job with his brother's company with Vince he decides to come in and announce his resignation so oh no wait in the conversation with superb he actually was convinced by superb to maybe emigrate so it's not about Vince's job that's right it's he decided at this point that he was going to go to to Mars just gonna emigrate off earth so he comes in he announces his resignation and he says I'm gonna leave now after chick leaves Garth McRae comes in and and at that very moment tells Mori that you now have the contract for the production, the making of the Deralta. He promotes Mori to a instantly because he must if he's going to be uh, making the Deralta. He's got to know the truth about it. And then the rest of the section is really chick pondering. Or Maury pondering Chick's luck and bad luck. Had he stayed on, he would have had a really big career boost, right? Because now Maury's going to have to hire all these people. And his firm's going to be really successful. It's like a billion-dollar contract. It's it's really a lot of money. And then the question is, like, why does the government want to shift over to, to Maury, Frau Zimmer, for this job? And, and McGee, or McRae, sorry, Garth McRae says... It's really craftsmanship that I respect. So he wants to work with a smaller firm rather than the, the big werk. There's also politics here. He wants to dip, disempower this large uh, company. But he, he praises Maury's craftsmanship. So next we get a little scene back at the Abraham Lincoln apartments with Edgar Stone. Edgar Stone is a minor character. He's, he's really most important because he's the one who passed Ian Duncan. And what we learn is that Ian Duncan had succeeded. He, he's was successful with the, with his performance and will probably get his chance to go to meet Nicole. So he's a bit jealous about this and he thinks it's kind of his fault because he's the one who passed Ian Duncan even though Ian Duncan had failed his his tests. And so he you know the fact that Ian and Ian Duncan and Al Miller have been chosen to perform at the White House fills Edgar Snow with all this jealousy and Stone begins to re- regret helping Ian and he, his way out of this is he eventually goes to, like, he goes to a priest, uh, a religious figure, and he, he actually is going to confess his sins. And it, it's a really wonderful scene, and it's, it's very much, it's quite funny in, in a Dickian way. He goes, instead of, like, you confess directly to a, a priest, you go to a confessionator. And the confessionator will hear your your sins, and your sins confessed, but it can, like, read your mind or can sense your emotions, they can tell if you've confessed all, or if you've confessed the main thing, or if there's more to tell, and so you can't leave, right? So he immediately confesses that, you know, he was, you know, he he passed this guy and he shouldn't, right? Because he wants to get it out there that Ian Stone shouldn't be a member of the community and therefore, you know, should lose his, you know, should never have been in the talent show in the first place. And then the confessionator is like, well, you, but you didn't confess the real thing. And it turns out that's like his jealousy for for Ian. And then he, I think he eventually confesses that too. And then the confessionator says, no, you got to stay here. So when we leave Edgar Snow, and I think this is the last we see the character, he's basically stuck in this confessionator having to confess all his sins, right? So you can imagine him stuck there for Weeks and weeks. he actually says he hadn't confessed for for years at this point. So you know all the all his sins are gonna to have to be confessed, and he might still be there, you know, at the end of the novel, for all we know. So it's it's really a, a humorous scene about this technology of the confessionator. Uh, and then at the end of chapter nine, we we meet Ian and Al, and they, and they think about the aftermath of realization that they they've they're gonna to go to the White House, and. They're going to meet Nicole and all that. So they're pretty excited about this. But there's also a lot of anxiety about meeting, meeting Nicole. And Ian is obsessed with with Nicole, of course. And uh, what does he say here? Um, quote, in his mind, Ian saw Nicole propped up in her enormous bed in her pink frilly robes, her breakfast tray on the tray, uh, breakfast on a tray beside her as she scanned the program schedules presented to her for approval. Already she's heard of us, he thought. She knows of our existence. In that case, we really do exist. Like a child that has to have its mother watching what it does, we're brought into being, validated consensually by Nicole's gaze. And when she takes her eyes off us, he thought, and then what? What happens to us afterwards? Do we disintegrate, sink back into oblivion, pack, he thought, into random, uniform, unformed atoms? Where we come from, this world of non being, the world we've been over our life until now. So not only do we have this really creepy Oedipus complex going on where he. He sexualizes Nicole, but also sees her as his mother. He's unable to even conceive of existence after meeting Nicole because, you know, that's his entire existence is justified by Nicole knowing they exist. But the minute he kind of leaves, departs from Nicole, does he he stops existing? I mean, there's kind of like almost a inverse solipsism, right, that we only exist because Nicole sees us. Not it's not that we're the only thing in the universe. There's almost Nicole's the only thing in the universe and things exist only because she perceives them including herself. So, again, Ian Duncan is not going to be happy, uh, unfortunately. It's poor guy. Um, now, Looney Luke arrives with, um, you know, and he's pretty cheesed off. He's essentially Al Miller and Ian Duncan stole the papula and used the corporate property to manipulate uh, a classical jug concert and the perception to it. And he takes back the papula. Um, eventually, they allowed them to use the papula in the White House concert. Though, um, they end up. There's a little bit of a conversation here about where art can be found in the world, and which is uh, I, I found interesting because Looney Luke kind of says like jugs. Like, that's not art, right? That's just trash, and. Al really believes that there's an art to the classical jug, and he says art can be found in the most un- mundane walks of life, like these jugs, for instance. And Luke is cynical, though he thinks you can only win, you can only impress people with the with the popula manipulating their mind. Um, but anyways, there's we learn here also about the ongoing conflict between Nicole and the government and Luke. Um, Essentially, Nicole wants to control immigration and Luke wants to take advantage of people wanting to leave, leave the country or leave the planet to go to Mars. And so there's a tension here, but essentially Nicole allows Looney Luke to endure the deal is essentially, I don't want prestige. This is what Luke says. I don't want prestige. There's no catering to Nicole Thibodeau by me. Let her run her society the way she wants, and I'll run the jungles the way I want. She leaves me alone, and I leave her alone, and that's fine with me. Don't mess it up. Tell Schlezak you can't appear and forget about it. No grown man in his right senses would be hooting into an empty bottle anyways. So that's the same conversation where Al has to defend the art of of the classical jug. But we learn a little bit about the... Uh, the conflict officially, these Loony Luke Jalapi jungles are illegal, but Nicole essentially allows them. Maybe, you know, a society like this, that's so psychologically burdened by, you know, basically all the men have an Oedipus complex, you know, needs uh, an escape valve uh, of that the Jalapi jungles uh, provide. Um, Alan. Ian also discuss the McPherson act here and the psychiatry versus chemical therapy. And they also then make a, an appointment to see superb. And what they want to know more about is basically the schizophrenia that, that Ian seems to be manifesting and his obsession about Nicole and everything. So a lot of our major characters here, King Grosian or chick, or in this case, Ian are e- ending up seeing the last psychiatrist, um, you know, allowed in the West. So another kind of running joke in this novel. Um, so that does it with with chapters 7, 8, 9. Um, so we got two more um, episodes. We're going to look at the, the final chapters of, of the simulacrum. But we're getting to the point where pretty much everything's in place for, for the climax. And we can start to close down some of the threads of of some of these characters. Um, but anyways, and if you're reading along in the next episode, I'll be looking at chapters 10, 11, and 12. So... Um, do that. And I'll be back shortly with my thoughts on those chapters. In the meantime, if you have any comments about the chapters I already read, anything I missed, any of your thoughts about uh, the alt-right, does this novel teach us anything about how to deal with or how to interpret um, the rise of the alt-right or the Jordan Peterson movement or, or you know, what's your feelings on, on the current status of, of masculinity and how does it compare with what's described here in the simulacrum? I guess that's some of the main themes I focused on uh, today um, so you know just leave your comments below or send me an email at hundredpagescassie at gmail.com and I'll, I'll certainly if you send me an email I'll respond in an upcoming episode so as always thanks for listening I'll see you next time with chapters 10, 11, 12 of the Simulacra you must search till you find a blue bird. you peace and contentment forever, if you.